Welcome back to the Gutsiest Brands podcast, the show built around understanding the DNA of gutsy brands by talking to the world's most innovative brand leaders. At Gut Check, we make it our business to understand brands. And over the years, we've learned that some brands are just gutsy and that they have four main qualities that make them gutsy. They're empathetic, pioneering, bold, and demonstrate what we call the power of and, those that see opportunity where others force trade-offs. When we find a brand leader that we think embodies gutsiness, we invite them on the show to explore what makes them so successful, what drives them every day, and to get their perspective on other gutsy brands out in the world. In this week's episode, we have double trouble because Jess Gedeke, the CRO at Gut Check, sits down with not one, but two Mondelez powerhouses, Nick Graham and Bridget Wolf. Nick Graham is the global head of insights and analytics for Mondelez International, the company that makes so many of the brands we know and love. He has over 20 years of experience working in insights and analytics, and before joining Mondelez, he worked at PepsiCo. Bridget Wolf is the vice president and global head of Snack Futures, the Mondelez International's innovation and venture hub. In today's episode, we learn what it really means to be a strong leader, what the empathy illusion is, and we discuss fantastic marketing campaigns such as the groundbreaking and memorable Oreo campaign and the innovative and clever way Cadbury India leveraged AI to help hundreds of local businesses. Grab your favorite snack, kick back, and enjoy another episode of the Gutsiest Brands podcast. So Nick and Bridget, I am so pleased to have both of you here. This is quite a powerhouse duo of innovative thinkers. I feel a tad outnumbered, I'm not going to lie, so I'll do my best to keep up with you both. But I'd love to start with each of you introducing yourselves. Tell us a little bit about where you are now and where you come from. So Bridget, to start with you. Thank you. Well, Jess, thanks for having us. And I, I tell you, I, I think it's um, it's a lot of laughs and a lot of humanity you'll find with Nick and I. So there's no <laughs> thing we'd be like, are we worthy? Um, so I'm based out of Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs there and have boomeranged back there. I was an investment banker beginning in my career, and then I moved into marketing and traditional CPG, and now I get to play in the world of startups, both, um, can't say pretending, because we're actually behaving in, and doing it on some levels, and also supporting and partnering with many in the ecosystem, um, and those that are, are doing it with their the mortgages on their backs, so it's great to be here. Nick, how about you? Um, so I'm based in New York City, as you can tell, a New York City resident, born and raised. No, not at all. I was uh, <laughs> raised in England. Um, I've been in the States 12 years, 13 years. Yeah, I guess so. I sort of feel like I don't quite belong in any culture anymore. Like I'm, my American friends still say I sound like completely British and uh, my British friends sound, think I'm floating somewhere in the mid-Atlantic these days with my, uh, my accent and my spelling. I started my career in advertising planning and worked my way through brand innovation strategy, uh, ended up uh, leading insights and analytics for PepsiCo, for their US business unit. And then just over a year ago, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, joined Mondelez as their global head of insights and analytics. And I think, you know, one thing that uh, you'll, you'll see that Bridget and I share definitely, and I know we'll come on and talk about this, is just a real 
passion, lifelong passion for understanding people and understanding behavior and why we do things. And I think you know, when, when people ask me why I enjoy doing what I do, fundamentally it comes back to that. So uh, wherever the world has taken me and it's taken me on a few different paths, it always comes back to that. And you two have not met in person yet. Do I have that right? We have Correct. not. Right. It feels like I know. I know. Yeah. It's yeah. really weird now that I think about it because I'm in an office now that I haven't been in for over two years. So. Mm -hmm. so how do you think you've been able to form such a connection not having met in person? What are some of the things that have been important for that? I was going to say, I think the first time I met Bridget, I just knew immediately that we shared a common sensibility, right? I think... As I said, a real passion for understanding why people do things. I think that's why lots of people uh, end up doing what we do. I think for both Bridget and me, I remember that first conversation we had. And just, I, honestly, we could have carried on talking for about another six hours, I think. Um, and by the way, I will say something that's amazing about Bridget is because she works with lots of startup companies and she's doing a lot of stuff in uh, in interesting spaces, she has a great show and tell. So when you're meeting her on Zoom, like whatever the question is, she has an object somewhere <laughs> behind her, underneath her desk, somewhere she'll have an object that will show you what it is that uh, that uh, she's talking about. But no, I just, I think from the very first conversation we had, I just felt this passion and energy and enthusiasm for transformation and change and, uh, willingness to do things differently and challenge the status quo and yeah that just spoke to me from the very beginning so while we've never met Bridget I feel like we have met a hundred times already. I'd echo it and, and I should say when I realized I never said what I do currently at Mondelez so I lead our Snack Futures team which which bridges a lot of the world of, of insights and, and the marketplace and I think you know what's always struck me about Nick is aside from when you, you meet someone, you have a kindred spirit of like, they, they get me and they get what we do and what we're trying to do here. And this is someone who may have different perspectives and backgrounds, but ultimately, as Nick was saying, understands transformation and some of the things that we're trying to do. And we'll talk about the empathy and, and just as a type of leader and insights. And then we start hearing them. There's just such a mutual respect that I think that's the other piece is I don't know, somehow we created, like I have an, an immense amount of trust in Nick and how I've talked about our teams and people and how we've approached things. So virtually, um, it's amazing. I was reading an article, and I think it was talking, I think it was Chinese culture of networking around a dinner, you never discuss business. And I, I love this because it said, you first have to meet the person to trust the person because why would you ever do business with someone you don't trust and how do you trust someone you don't know and I think what you'll find in this conversation is Nick and I tend to be open books to some extent we're very transparent people so you get to know us pretty quickly as people which hopefully we can then build trust and then you can get on with the business yeah and I'll say actually that reminded me um, if you follow Bridget on LinkedIn, and I would encourage everybody to go and do that after this, I think what really comes across about you, her, is um, what an incredibly human leader Bridget is and her passion for people and, under, and, and mental health and mental wellness and well-being is really second to none. So I think uh, yeah, that's a real passion for me as well. Thank you. Well, that's a tremendous jumping off point. So I'm sure our listeners can't wait to hear more and I can't wait to get into these questions. So let's, let's do it. The first characteristic that we like to think about when it comes to gutsy brands is leading with empathy. 
And I've seen each of you share a perspective on the importance of empathy, not just in business and in brands, but as Nick, as you just mentioned, in being a leader and in building an organizational culture. Um, so I'd love for each of you to talk about how do you embed empathy in your process? And when you think specifically about brand strategy, how important is it for empathy to play a role there as well? So Bridget, I'll start with you on this idea of empathy, but I know each of you has really passionate perspective here. I think as one in consumer product, you know, the goods, that space, at the end of the day, it's a human. I always go back to like, it's a human who uses this. I even for a while started saying, stop using the word consumer because years ago in banking, someone had looked at a million spreadsheet numbers and they said, there's always a story behind every number. And I think we have to remember that every data point has a story behind it and a reason for being. So we've we've gotten so consumed with with the trends and the numbers and you know the scalability of something. But at the end of the day, it is a human being opening your package, eating it, applying it, whatever they're doing with it. And so and sometimes I joke, it's just I kind of like the simplicity of knowing what is it? What is it? What does it do? How do I use it at a really basic you know, I joke is like talking like a kindergartner, like I'm the simplest one in the room. How do I use this? And then you, you get this fancy, all these buzzwords. I'm like, but would you ever carry it that way? And they're like, well, no, but that's what, you know, like, well, then why would you package it that way? So there's something about bringing it to the end of one, which I think is so important of imagining, truly imagining their space. And if you can't imagine it, go talk to consumers and learn what does their room look like? What does their office look like? What is their commute? Um, ride it, try and live it a little bit to understand it so that you have that visualization when you're creating something for them that you can you know, step into their world. And I think with work, you know, COVID has opened this up because we've literally seen people's homes so differently. For me, working with others is just having a level of humanity, of understanding of we are humans at the end of the day of what we're going through. Most people know if I travel at some point, I'll be calling home for my girls. Um, we all joke about the personal lives because those are the interruptions that are gonna, you know, a call from school or you know, someone's car broke down, whatever it is. And when you know more and you have that empathy, you have a much greater tolerance. I find we have a much more compassion. It doesn't disrupt the flow of the work at all because it's going to go into place. So I think having that for my team and their people and trying to be there with them is really important. I think to echo what Bridget said, um, so first of all, completely agree. The whole idea of a consumer and a shopper is just so archaic as an idea because newsflash, people don't just consume and shop. They are, are hum fully rounded human beings that do lots of things, including those two things. Um, and I completely agree with what you're saying. I think fundamentally, at the end of all of these num ones and zeros and spreadsheets and presentation decks is a human being who's making a conscious unconscious decision whether to buy something, consume something, consume it again. And I think what is what is fascinating about that is, is two two contradictory statements. One is that human beings were all universally very similar. Our brains work in fairly similar ways. Um, we're pretty low on attention, right? We don't, to Bridget's point, we don't really think very deeply about most things that do. As marketers, we think much deeper than we ever think of as consumers, right? Yes. I mean, if we actually go into store 
and buy things ourselves in our weekly grocery shop. And most of us don't think that deeply, except for the products and the categories we work on, we don't think that deeply about what it is that we're buying. And so fundamentally, you know, we do all share the same characteristics. However, I think the challenge is marketers are not the people that are going to buy the product at the end of the day. And I think we do have to remember that is, yes, we're all fundamentally the same, but actually the cultural context of the audience that you're designing for can be completely different. And what they value and what's top of mind for them um, is really, that's what you really need to get under the surface of what you really need to understand. And I know there's been, you know, the uh, there's been a lot of talk about the empathy wall, right? You know, writ large across society and people not, not trying to understand one another. I think one of the challenges sometimes actually in marketing is what I call the empathy illusion, which is people think they know people because they've got some data points or they've read a research report or, you know, they, they've got a, um, a quote from somebody from somewhere. And I think actually that can be just as dangerous sometimes, which is people you think you understand the audience. But one of the big focus areas we're trying to do, particularly a lot of the work um, that Bridget is, and the team and Snack Futures are looking at, is doing really deep, immersive ethnographic research to really understand what matters to people and different types of audiences and extreme users who have really extreme needs for the products or services that we're looking at. So we're not just looking at the average, we're looking at extremes of experience as well to understand what it looks like for different, for different design targets. And so I think, it, it, and that takes time and that's a challenge often I think is really taking the time and the space. And I'd say from a marketing standpoint and then from a leadership standpoint to pivot to your other question, I think one of the, one of the great ways that I've seen us embed that day to day is just asking really good questions, really asking really good questions of the, you know, when you're designing a product of the people you're trying to serve with it um, and leaving space for them to think about it and to answer it and not just jumping in with your next question, but really leaving space for a conversation and a dialogue. And it's interesting, you know, applying exactly those same principles to the people that we work with. I was working on something the other day and uh, somebody came to me frustrated about a partner somewhere else in the in the organization, right? You know, just the, the usual stuff that happens every day. And I just said, well, have you have you asked what's going on, right? To Bridget's point, have you asked like what's going on without being too personal? Like, is everything else okay? What's behind this question? And they went back and they talked to the other person and discovered a whole series of pressures that they're under and questions that they're getting. And, and so quickly we want to respond and act. And all it takes, all it takes sometimes is just asking a good question. Hey, what's going on? And how can I help? And what's really behind this question? And just leaving space to, to, to let the other person respond and let them get there and let, let that, that out. I know we were talking um, as a team about how to build consumer centricity and there's lots of tools and techniques and fast turn research and qualitative research, et cetera, that we can do to bring the consumer voice to life. But I said, sometimes actually one of the best things you can embed in a team is just asking those questions. What would, what would our consumer think about this? Like, what do we know about them? What does matters to them? And, and even if we don't have the answers, just asking those questions sometimes reveals where the gaps are as opposed to processing our way through a set of templates or a set of, you know, uh, check, check mark, uh, checkbox uh, solutions. So many good lessons in there, not just how to think about the human that you're trying to appeal to with your brand, but also trying to appeal to the people that you support as a leader. And you're absolutely right, Nick, it takes time. It takes time to be an empathetic leader. It takes a lot of energy and, and frankly, emotion from me. That's the way I feel. Uh, 
but it's, it's so important to do and not just um, with the world the way it is, but also interacting virtually, which is kind of where we started the, the conversation. Um, if you don't ask those questions, you're really going to miss what's going on with them as a human being. So just quick uh, plug for our VP of marketing. He introduced a quick red, yellow, green. Every check-in we have, every one-on-one -on -one starts with, hey, where are you, red, yellow, green? And it's so surprising how that simple question, you start to see people go, well, I'm kind of yellow because of this. And it's just such an interesting and simple way to make sure that you're starting with, let's not get down to brass tacks right away. Let's see where we're coming from, the context that you're operating in. And I think that's a really great point, which is we talk about this both empathy in the team and empathy with the people we're trying to connect with as well outside, which is it does just take time. Like when when have you ever turned up at some like first time you meet somebody? I mean, Bridget and me aside, first time you meet somebody, when do you get into like a deep conversation about their entire life and how they got there? And like it, it takes time, right, to build a relationship with people. And so, you know, and you have to invest in it. And it and I think, you know, that's one of the it's been great during the pandemic. You've been able to, you know, to your point, Bridget, you can see people's backgrounds, you can see their lives a little bit. Um, but the sort of constraint of virtual also means that sometimes you don't have the space for those ad hoc, you know, five minute conversations in the hallway. You know, you don't look great. Tell me a little bit more about what's happening. So I do think just it is, an, it's, it's, it is, it is emotionally tiring and it's tiring and, and takes time and it's consuming. But it's so valuable and so important to really invest that time in understanding other people, or the people you work with, or the people um, that you want to buy your products. And I'm just thinking, Nick, like as a leader, like I, I love to answer questions and, and, to, and to solve, right? And that's not the point. And so, right? And so even listening to you, it's like, how do you use, how, how do you make that a discipline of more pause, of like asking the question and that pause in the silence. And ironically, with Zoom, it, it forced that because you can't interrupt. I can't do what I do, which is interrupt in real life all the time. You have to pause because the system overrides you. So it's like, how do we now take advantage of some of these skills to like read the room, look at the video faces, like who's up, who's down? And that takes effort. And I think just it's a lovely reminder, Nick, to be like, how do I? pause for my team and asking them question and then giving them the space themselves to answer is so powerful. I, and I'm terrible. I mean, I'm the worst person to fill gaps because I don't know, I must have like gap in the, uh, the sentence problem or gap in the, the conversation problem because like, if there's a gap, I'll, I'll fill it with something. I just as I'm doing, gonna do right now. Um, <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, you, I've had to learn, sometimes you just have to ask the question and it has to be that awkward silence, whoever it is that you're speaking to because sometimes you need that to allow the space for something to come out and something to, to happen. I loved um, just the red, yellow, green, because the other thing I was gonna say, particularly on, on this whole space of empathy, whether you're really trying to you know, dig under the surface of how somebody feels about something, it's sometimes hard to find the language. So you do need those stimulus, you need those things to help with the conversation, facilitate the conversation. It isn't easy for people to just jump in to tell, so let me tell you about my deepest motivations and my deepest secrets and fears and worries about every day. Like you need ways to get to that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell why people love to work for both of you and also why you develop some brands that a lot of people want to buy and continue to buy. So let's, let's go one next level on the empathy piece. And Nick, I'd love to hear your perspective here because 
one of the ways that, that we think about um, empathy at Gut Check is that you want the people that are buying your products that are ideally advocating for your products, they feel truly understood, right? They, they think, God, this brand really gets me. And in order to do that, you do have to understand people at a very human level. But you have a really powerful point of view on authentically engaging, particularly with the LGBTQ plus community, and that authenticity is more than just communication. It has to be paired with action. So I'd love for you to talk about what it takes for brands to really act, to walk the walk when they want to genuinely connect with a community. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, every, as, you know, as a member of the community every year when we go through Pride, you know, you see everybody waving a rainbow flag and then almost, you know, come July 1st, the question is always like, what happened to all those rainbow flags that everybody was flying last month? Um, and I think like, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before, which is we need to think of these things as relationships and relationships are things you invest in over time. And again, if you just see somebody once, it's a pretty transactional relationship, right? And you shouldn't expect much from the other person. Um, so it is something you need that we need to invest in and, um, and continuously over time. And it, more than just you know, showing up and saying things occasionally. I think the best example of that from our side, one of the best examples is the work that Oreo has done um, with Proud Parent and, and PFLAG. And I think it's just such a powerful way of really being embedded in the community, understanding the community and, and um, LGBTQIA plus allies as well. And yes, there's the great communication that Team Jam, if you've seen the, the latest um, that they did, just such powerful thought provoking work um, and so, so incredibly representative of the community. And I think lots of different parts of the community feel very, very heard and seen and particularly, particularly the way that they've spoken to some of the intersectional groups as well, to groups that don't always get the same coverage. But I think more importantly is this isn't a one-off one, one -off thing. It isn't just a piece of video content. It's a piece of ongoing um, commitment to the community showing up um, throughout the entire year. And I think that's, that's the key thing because, you know, again, I think particularly for um, younger generations now as well, you know, they have a pretty pretty high bar for engagement with the communities and um, not just LGBTQ, but other communities as well. And they can sniff out when brands are not really fully authentic and fully part of the community, um, you know, because it feels very one-off, it feels very transactional. So it is something you have to stick with over time and go back to again and again and work out how else you can help beyond communication and beyond the odd social post. It's how you can really commit um, to working with the community. Yeah, and I think that's a really solid point about building that relationship takes time. Um, and, and the brands that really show a commitment to that and demonstrate that commitment over and over again are, are ones that we really respect a lot uh, from a gutsy point of view. So to move to another characteristic of, of gutsy brands, Bridget, I'm so excited to hear you talk about some of your favorite brands in this space because one of the things that we admire is standing behind a bold idea, even if it's not well understood or maybe appreciated at the time. And with Snack Futures, you get to see a lot of brands before their time in the snacking category. So what's a brand or a couple of brands that you've seen stand behind bold ideas and how do they build conviction for that idea? So it's interesting. We have two sides of, of Snack Futures. One was a, a team of, of internal 
innovators that were building brands. And I have to, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then the external world, which the irony is the brands that we see in the external world are already leaps and bounds advanced of what we were creating because we were starting from a blank sheet of paper. Um, and the commonalities actually are so strong that I'll speak to a few um, that we had. So we also do a, a program called CoLab, which we run through uh, about a, you know up to 10 startups. So you get to know that class really well. But two brands on our side that we've developed and are running, one is Kapow, which is upcycling cacao fruit. So this is a space that is radically new. We work with Turner Wyatt in the USA and listening to Turner and those who are trying to make a movement out of upcycled food. But it's fringe. Like it's more in the conversation. I always joke, like everyone's talking about, like everyone in our bubble is talking right. about it. Like if you talk to anyone outside, no one knows what you're talking about. Um, but there are such passionate believers in food waste reduction and, and the impact of, of reusing ingredients and upcycling ingredients, whatever byproducts there are. Um, it's so small. But if you listen to uh, the team member who runs this, and it's small, he's like, this is so important. This is making such a difference. Uh, we have another brand called Dirt Kitchen Snacks, which is all about plant-based and veggie forward. So very different. We know 91% of Americans want to eat more vegetables, but we don't. And so this is a way of making them snackably delicious, but that's hard. And it's hard in COVID when you can't taste it. And there's all this skepticism of a brand that has the word dirt in it and a brand that's about vegetables and a brand that have to pay more for. And yet the team would lay on tracks being like, I believe in this with every fiber of my body, that this is the right thing to be selling and to be marketing and a product that we stand behind and a purpose that we stand behind. And when we see that then in, in any one of the brands that we have in um, CoLab, we have from the, the love corns of the world to this year's class, we have a passion-based, uh, purpose-based class, which is popcorn for the people and everybody eat and we can people can go down the line lately every single one of those founders internal or external is has such conviction behind what they are doing that that is what makes them so gutsy because they are doing something that is so scary that they have to explain to the world you know sometimes it's really complicated levels of the communication and that's also part of it there it's you fall in love with so many elements it's like okay now you got to say one thing pick the one thing you're going to talk about to everyone about um, this. And, and that is um, it's hard and it takes guts to how do I, how do I strip back of what I have to do? So I think, um, you know, so many of the startup community are gutsy because they are, they're following either a personal passion, they had their own food journey um, and they're getting behind it, but it is, it literally, and I would say even now, it's clawing your way out of the trenches. It is a lot of work. And um, to have such a core true north of what you're doing and to fight for it every single day and explain to investors or resources or management why this thing is so important. Um, it's just outstanding to watch in the startup community. I'm sure that you could fill a most interesting dinner table with these, these founders and just hear them tell their stories. We're so lucky to interview a lot of those, you know, really just innovative thinkers that start businesses. And we leave every conversation with chills. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, you just, this is your, your, your baby. And it's, it's so exciting to see it come to fruition. 
Nick, what about you? Do you think, can you think of a brand or a, a, a leader that you know that really embodies that trait as well? I mean, Bridget is basically that person in my, in my view. Well, it's, 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 it's funny because when I, when I, I was thinking say. about that, <laughs> when I was thinking about that, I think I, I was actually going to say, I think Kapow, um, which is part of the Snack Futures uh, team, and which is the upcycled um, cacao fruit, a, a cacao plant, I think is a really great example of where you take something that, I mean, makes a ton of sense and it's about upcycling and to, and to your point, Bridget, it's niche, but it feels like it's absolutely on trend and it's, you know, it's, it's smart, right? You know, in a world where we're in limited resources, actually upcycling, you know, 70% of the, the, the fruit that basically otherwise gets thrown away and discarded today. And, you know, we make a lot of chocolate, so what a really smart move. But it takes boldness and bravery and courage to push that forward. And I know Bridget and the team face this every day because, you know, it is niche and it's hard to explain and both internally and for um, uh, people on the outside as well. Like, well, does it taste of chocolate? And what am I expecting? And so there's a whole, like, what do I expect from this? And, and it is complicated, but I think, you know, what to Bridget said is what I, what I see in her and the team and again in the, the collab um, uh, members as well, is this just this powerful, belief and conviction and that's what carries you through I hope at least anyway that's what carries you through right and there's times when it's things are really tough and really hard to explain and really hard to get traction on is that conviction and belief that it's the right thing to do and you know I see internally you know I mean I guess you know so again back to the proud parent example we talked about you know sometimes or some of the other work that uh, like Lacta Brazil did uh, Lacta Greece did on domestic abuse like those are really tough topics and people are like, oh, should a brand be talking about this? Should we be talking about this? But I think again, that conviction and belief of the team that no, this is the right thing to do. And yes, we want to invest in this, in telling this story and invest in it over time. I think to me again and again, it kind of comes back to that. You know, it, I didn't agree more. And it was interesting. We had, when we first kicked off Collab this year with you, they were introducing themselves and their purpose. And you can't help but get choked up listening to these stories. It's the same reaction I had when I watched the Oreo and the Lacta, where it yeah. is so powerful. It hits such to your core as a person, as a human, right? That someone is speaking on behalf for those who haven't been spoken. I get emotional now. It's yeah. like, who speaks for it? It is, those are the brands that are gutsy. They're not just, yeah, sometimes we need the feel good and like the, the calm party and stuff, but but to get to someone's soul yeah. takes a risk. And that is a gutsy move. And to do it with platforms that are as big as Oreo and as visible, yeah. um, you know, they're a superstar and they have a platform that they can use as that personality. So to see it used in that force is, is magical. Yeah, it reminds me of, I remember I was um, a consultant working with Unilever when they did the whole Dove Real Beauty um, campaign and you know it's sort of apocryphal now right and it's like now we look back and go, of course you know brilliant thing to do but I, I remember hearing how hard it was to sell internally because it was like well that's that's not what our brand does and um, like what right have we got to talk about this and shouldn't we just be talking about the quarter moisturizing cream that's the thing that we've talked about for years and years so, so even when things seem really obvious if that's the right word to us on the outside internally you know whatever it is it takes so much conviction and belief and I think in that case my understanding is they actually have to sort of bring it to life for the members of the leadership team on what it actually meant for their wives daughters to live in this world of 
ridiculous false expectations of, of beauty before it really hit home to people. Like, what actually does that mean to, to real people, right? To your point before, Bridget, like, there are real people out there thinking these things, feeling these things. And as long as your brand is willing to, back to your point before, Jess, is willing to make that commitment and investment to truly speak for that cause over time and, and do something valuable, then yeah, then absolutely the brand should do it. But again, it comes, it has to, it has to be something solid at the heart here that is really going to push that forward. There's almost a, a you know, viewers say what's a resident, there has to be, there's a cost of doing that, right? There's a price to be paid if they're wrong, if the move is wrong, it's, it's a risky endeavor of, and the stakes are high. You know, this isn't just their small moves. And I think that's a really nice telltale. You're like, ooh, that was, that was a bold, you know, they put their, they put, you know, the whole cards on the table for that one. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the intersection of those two characteristics is so important that you could have a bold idea that's not, you know, popular yet or understood yet. If it's grounded in empathy and trying to further the lives and the experiences of the people that you want to help, then it is the right choice. And it might take a, a lot of extra effort and blood, sweat, and tears to convince leadership, to get the investment decisions, all the things that need to happen. But when it's grounded in empathy, that's where we see that continuity of these stories. And so I love that you both touched on that. It's I can't wait to link the, the Oreo campaign in the notes as well, because I'd love for everyone to see it. And um, but I, I couldn't miss the opportunity to bring those two things together because it's, it's at the core of what, what you're saying. Yeah. So another characteristic of gutsy brands that we love to hear perspective on is this idea of pioneering a new path or a new way of doing business. Um, whether that's through a distribution channel, whether it's through a new technology that's developed, I'd love to hear from each of you. Where have you seen brands that have really pioneered a new, a new pathway forward? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting. One, um, you know, internally we've tried. I think so many of the big corporates out there, um, brand managers and directors, are listening. Like to everyone gets on this hamster wheel. This is how we do things, but we know it's not working, and yet they can't unwind it. I think taking we had an opportunity with Snack Futures to take a really deep breath to say, if this was our business and our company and our team, how do we want to operate? And we set up that way using all the expertise and knowledge and guardrails that we had big. And that has enabled us as a pathway to unleash so much of the talent that we had and the possibility um, and the potential of kind of new boundaries and snacking. What we've seen now is like, you look at GoPuff, people like GoPuff, like we met them in the office years ago. They were just starting and I am so proud to see what they're doing and expanding, but like completely changing delivery systems and mechanisms now. And we have no affiliation. You just get to watch that. Um, you know, we, we have investments in technologies and you see Israel is like one of the coolest spaces that we get to, to work with teams there. And the entrepreneurship, what's going on in cellular-based agriculture and whether it's in farming or other, but someone even said like, just you have to reimagine what our agriculture could be. And it just totally flips the perspective. So I think they just look at the world in, if I had a blank sheet of paper, how would I do this starting today versus what's been done? Knowing like you need water or sunlight, but you know, there's a Disneyland ride that shows you all this vertical farming that's going on in the future. Like, do I need all this land? Do I need to do all this? Um, and so I think those that radically change their perspective on how things are done are the best pioneers because they 
they have no assumptions of how it's supposed to be. They're just like, what would be ideal? Wouldn't it be great if we could do this? And then they tinker with that. Yeah, I think to Bridget's point, I think the key question there is, wouldn't it be great if or what if? And I think that really is, I mean, again, I'm back to simple questions, but it really is a simple question, isn't it? It's like, I think, I think often in corporate cultures, you're working within a set framework and it's very much like how I evolve this as opposed to how I rethink it and reimagine it. And I think, you know, some, some of our brands and obviously particularly in some of the more ventures and, and snack future space, like I think, you know, having the liberty and the freedom to be able to truly say, well, what if we did something truly different and reimagined it from the very beginning? I'll take a very different example, completely away from product innovation, which is actually, um, the work that the Cadbury team did with um, in India over Diwali um, last year, which I think was just a really incredible way of, from a brand marketing perspective of saying what if. So, you know, obviously most small stores in India have been hit really badly by the pandemic, you know, but really significant lockdowns um, and you know, very disruptive. And, you know, many of them, you know, living in very limited uh, amount of income in the first place right so a lockdown completely damaged uh, and destroyed a lot of businesses and you know typically brands in the run-up to Diwali it's all about you know buy me buy me buy me right and one of the things I thought was really amazing that the Cadbury team did in India is they said what if what if we could advertise local stores like all the little local stores around India you know how on earth are you going to do that right like how on earth do you do you do that and so they, the team actually were one of the first to use um, generative artificial intelligence um, in advertising. To, so they uh, used a great uh, Bollywood star and they created a generative uh, AI tool whereby you could, you could uh, adapt him to say this whole, like, whole range of hundreds of thousands of different local stores around India and celebrate buying there in Diwali. So really to celebrate Diwali by bringing people back um, to the local stores that had been really been hit by COVID. Oh, cool. That's, and to me, it was just like, it was, it was so again, the, it was like- The technology of the GPS the, and the localization yeah, and the exactly. personal level was so cool. And just the, the, the ability to, to take that really hyper-personalized view, I think is just so incredible and to make it feel so real. Like it, I mean, if you watch it, you almost wouldn't realize, right? You wouldn't realize that it was, uh, that it was AI. It's so spot on. Um, and I think that's a great example of the team and with our agency partners in, in Ogilvy and Wavemaker just saying, well, what if we could do so? What would it take in order to be able to do this? Because we think, we, we know, you know, we can see the vision, a bit, a bit like um, Bridget was talking about before. Like when you see those visions, I can see what it looks like. I don't know how to get there, but I'm going to work out how to get there and how to use technology in a different way. I love that example. And it's, it's a, such a personification of what it means to be pioneering because mm -hmm. By definition, there's no pathway before the pioneering happens. And so you have to be able to think beyond. What a fantastic example, both of those. Oh my gosh, cellulose agriculture, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, I love it. Um, one other thing that we really, really value is this idea of the power of and, and that is finding opportunities where others might force compromise. And one way that I've seen this play out in entrepreneurial companies is employing big company tactics at the entrepreneurial companies and vice versa. And so I'm curious, Bridget, have you seen that? Have you seen where a smaller startup brand has benefited from bigger company thinking and vice versa? 
all the time. It's what CoLab is based on, of mutual learning and, and benefit. I think there's sometimes this misguided under, you know, assumption of, I'm so small, what can I offer them? And I'm so big, I, I can tell them everything. And they're both wrong, <laughs> radically wrong, because the truth is you're so different that you when know, we talk about diversity, we started you know, in this conversation, diversity takes all sorts of shapes and sizes. And actually one of the coolest things I was telling someone the other day in a walk about looking at the startups and who's in their um, offices and on their teams is just their backgrounds and their, their pieces is such a radically diverse group of thinkers and perspectives. And so, um, you know, I would say, where we big has come in is sometimes we just have knowledge and access that they may not know yet. So it's, you know, well, this, this buyer thinks of it this way, or, or do you, do you know what PPA is, right? We have all these frameworks and they're like, what? I'm like, you can optimize because they start doing innovation and you start seeing its flavors and forms and you're like, no one knows who you are. So go back to the one thing that you started with and you are. And by the way, you know, you can do a single serve, you can do a multi, you can go on the go, you can have a family, like you can take that one product and size it up and size it down. You know, it's, it's the Doritos at, at its best and Oreos at its best. So we have frameworks. Sometimes we have specific tools and we have resources that we can bring from our packaging teams and, and the, the science and that knowledge and then scale. What does it look like from negotiations that we can bring all of that to the entrepreneurs? At the same time, the entrepreneurs bring us back that holy grail of empathy. They are the reason for why they are marketing, whether it's for an honor of a parent or because they have a dietary restriction or they got frustrated watching others do this and no one was solving the problem or they just had the idea and they saw a need. They are the quintessential hypercentric, consumer-centric leaders. Um, so they get us back in touch with those roots of reminding ourselves every day of well, how do you talk to your consumer? Because they don't have the resources that Nick has and for all this research and data that we have all this talent. When we talk to people on the social media, we're learning how they do social media. It's a different generation of engaging with their teams. We learn things about partners. You know, we're learning, um, you know, God bless them. People, someone will ask the group, like, well, who do you use for this and for merchandise? Or how did you go to do this? Or how do you sell for it? Well, Dirt Kitchen and Kapow are at that size. So we're like, how do you do it? And then how do we pass that on to a team internally that wants to do what we call like a test and learn? So you don't have to do the big scale launch. But by the way, there's these smaller players that can run smaller batches for us and we can learn and iterate and then refine. Um, I would say it's endless. The cultural value of one of the, I would say the biggest ahas we've had that mentors and different speakers that have engaged with the startups have said is they forgot what it's like to think of the business in its entirety. You know, we become siloed experts as the company gets bigger and bigger, you become a functional expert often. But that doesn't mean that you aren't responsible to the entire company and that entire brand and that what you do impacts everyone else. And there are such interdependencies that we often forget about. Whereas in small companies, everyone's sitting around the table Everyone has skin in the game. They're all in it to win it. Um, and so they make those decisions on a much more holistic basis. You know, we, we're joking, I'll, I'll have to put a dollar in for Gustavo when I say end to end. Um, but it's, uh, it's really having all of those 
connect, you know, connection points on a brand um, that they they do by default, but it is so critical. And it's true that every decision impacts the other function. And each of you as, as insights experts, I know that you live and breathe that every day because how often have you seen perhaps recommendations come from a research engagement that are just not feasible from a supply chain or a legal or a finance standpoint? And you're probably like, hey, thanks for that. What am I going to do with that? Um, versus taking the more holistic business um, entrepreneurial view of it to say, what are the interdependencies? And then finding ways to overcome some of those barriers to some of the other discussion about what it means. Um, but I, I completely agree. And I think that each of your jobs um, are quite difficult in that way, that you see those interdependencies, but um, can't always catch them in the moment, I imagine. Um, yeah. And you, you mentioned the word compromise. There was someone who used to work here and he was a Pepsi Kevin Powell. It's just incredible. But he used to always say, what is the elegant solution? And it was one of my, fa- it still is one of my favorite phrases because there is an elegant solution to solve those tensions of, of where you're pushing and pulling on all of those functions and all of the needs of everyone. Um, you know, that's where some of the brilliance is. And I think what I was going to say on that is, um, you, you sort of touched on this, Jess, is that when you, when you talk to you know, the audience you're trying to reach out, yeah, there's lots of things they might want. There's lots of things they might want from the product you're designing. I think this, and not all of that will be feasible. And to your point, there's sort of a, there's always a healthy tension, I think, in really great innovation of if it, if it's, if it's really easy to do, then we should already be doing it. There's got to be some rub of like, the consumer, again, I hate that phrase, but the person we're trying to reach wants something we can't fully deliver. Now, are we going to deliver all of that? No, but we're going to work out then what, what really matters, what would they really value, as opposed to going, well, we can't do any of that, so we'll just make this thing we can make, and going, I'm going to do all of that and then bankrupt the company, right? So it's finding that really healthy tension of working out, like, what is the what is the sufficient, elegant solution that actually really does deliver against the 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 compromise spoken or unspoken that they're working with at the moment and I think um, one of the things that Bridget and I are really passionate about um, obviously we're doing a lot of this in snack features and now increasingly across the rest of the business as well when it comes to more stretchy innovation is truly embedding that test and learn mentality which is going out with a you know a minimum viable product a safe minimum viable product and then testing and learning in market product, product proposition, packaging, placement in store, pricing, all of the different P's to understand like what actually matters, what can we play with in reality when people actually experience this and maybe they're willing to pay a bit more for it. Okay, that gives us a little bit more flexibility. Maybe they don't value that particular packaging type that's costing us a lot of money, but maybe they really want something else. And again, I think the old linear model of like, I'm going to develop the perfect concept and the perfect product, I'm going to ship it out and people are going to buy it and repeat it. It works for some things, some things that we know really well how to do, but particularly as you're stretching into new spaces um, and novel technologies and novel categories and hybrid categories, there isn't a formula. And so you have to test and learn and iterate. And that's actually when you when you work out what the real workaround or what the real compromise is that people are trying to solve for. And so I think, again, that takes courage as well, because it's like, it's a different way, increasingly common, but it's still a different way of operating. You know, I mean, look, I think Snack Futures is a, by definition, we realize everything we do, Snack Futures was an experiment. Everything we do is an experiment. I think um, one of the challenges with corporates is, is reminding the learning part. 
you know, it's it's a test iterate, it's a test learn do, test learn do. It's not a one and done. We love pass fail tests. Um, and we have to get better at being like, it wasn't about the fail, like it's what's the next cycle and learning that you do and giving permission for that learning to then do something else with it. Someone, I don't know if it was, it's, I don't know if this is public, but I thought it was fascinating. And one of my team members met the founder of Oatly and I think he was saying, yeah, they've been at it for 15, it took them 15 years to like take off, but it wasn't until they made the connection to coffee for milk that it took off. I mean, think about that, all the uses of, of milk and what Oatly could be, it was like that was the, the thing that like flipped it. And so it's like, you have to noodle this. Mm-hmm. We don't get it right. Like we love to be right, but we're not right lots of times. We're definitely not right at the beginning. And you know, it's kind of like all those brilliant ads. They were all these kind of average things that bumbled along and we have to give yourself time and permission or at least iteratives. Maybe it's not even time, but do a lot of iterations. Um, to get to the one thing where you're like, God, that was so obvious, you know, but it, it just wasn't. <laughs> And I think, you know, even with more close in innovation, I think, you know, not any, not every innovation is brilliant as it is when it, you know, leaves the leaves the concept or leaves the concept product test or even, you know, leaves the factory is going to survive, right? It's just the, the, the law of averages. But um, what I would say is I think the key point is just learning from that, right? I mean, certainly, you know, particularly based in, you know, my past career, too often what I've seen happen is corporates go, something fails, the whole thing is dead, right? That whole idea. When actually sometimes, sometimes it isn't, it's just the way it was executed, or maybe it was too early, or maybe it was too late and you were just doing a me too, but there's there's true learning in that. And too often those learnings just get discarded, right? With the, with the remainder of the product, they just get thrown in the trash. And I think that's just such a, that's such a missed opportunity. And again, going back to Bridget's perspective about, um, entrepreneurs and uh, you know collab partners they wouldn't do that because they don't have that they don't have that ability right and they're that that mindset so I think that is really really critical we think about it. and their purpose is like so much bigger than just that product right well, yeah. well if this yeah. didn't work then I got to do this with it or if this doesn't work then how do I pivot it again yeah so there's this you know incredible defiance and stubbornness of trying to figure it out um with entrepreneurs that we need to build that a little bit. I love some of those adjectives you used, defiance and all that good stuff on stubbornness. I love it. You guys ready for lightning rounds? Lightning rounds are fun. They're not that lightning. So we're going to do the first of our two lightning rounds. This one is the DNA of a gutsy brand. So what I'd love to ask you to do is it can be a brand that you've worked on or a brand that you're a consumer of or a human user of. There are no right or wrong answers. Just give me the first brand you can think of that really demonstrates empathy. Nick, go. Dove. I think they fundamentally understood something about their category and how it felt to be not just on the receiving end of their products, but the whole industry. And I think they you know, there is there was some inherent truth in the product which made the whole space of real beauty feel true and authentic and it felt like something they could speak to. But I think at the heart of it was a, it was a really deep understanding about, um, and you know, obviously I can't speak to this, but what it's like to be a woman in that particular, in, you know, facing the barrage of, uh, you know, false views of what beauty looks like. So I think it's such a powerful message and one, again, that they've had the commitment to stick with, stick with over time. 
Bridget, how about you? So it's funny. I went from Kapow to I was like the shoes that I buy of soft meat to Apple and all. But I think, um, and, and then there, it is interesting. The female product space is is incredible too. I mean, if you just go into that, because there's so much shame in, you know, there thinks, I mean, the whole period cycle thing, I think it's incredible to have the level of empathy and elevating, there's elevating difficult conversations. Apple, I'll give on the other side, is because they get, forget about where they are today, but what I started is they get the human experience of just simplicity and design. And I think, you know, if you can have empathy, like I know what to do it, that my parents could figure out their phone pretty simply, there's an empathy there in users. It's not so complicated. Yeah. I like both of those parts of the spectrum of empathy. Great examples. How about a brand that has been particularly pioneering? So... I was thinking Ikea, which I know sounds like, you know, so 1990s, but I think what, when I was thinking about earlier, when you were saying about what makes something pioneering, I think what they came in, I think it came into that whole, you know, home furnishing space and just asked lots of what if questions and like, what if we don't build this for you, you go and build it yourself? What if we cut out all of this cost in it? So it's half the price. So I think the, I mean, they've been around obviously for so long now, but I think when their original intention, when they came in and the way that they shook up the category, the whole category, the whole space, I think they, and the technology, uh, the um, technology and the router market and the consumer experience, like the whole thing was very different from what people had seen before. So um, yeah, just, and I mean, you look at now, now in many cases, they are style and trend setters, which is just hard to believe from where they started. But again, I think they started from a really simple insight of how do we do this really differently mm -hmm. and what if to your point asking yeah. that question Bridget how about you pioneering I think Uber's change transportation um I mean aside I mean it's still with taxis but just our our whole on-demand lives and I want it now and in my hand whenever wherever it catered to that and it filled it filled frustrations with taxis um to, to the fact that it's almost a verb now in our lexicon like I'm just going to Uber it wild. I, I love that example. So many lessons to learn from that pioneer. How about a brand that stands behind bold ideas? You've both given several great examples here, but do you see something else either as a, as a consumer, as a, a brand leader? I just like the brands that I like, they, they give me quality and consistency. Like what's, you know, I, I, for years, I'll tell you a frustration. I love Asics running shoes and my stockings now. And they would change them every year. I'm like, I finally found what I love and you change it every year and you can't map it. Or there's a, there's a really cute disruptive, um, it's disruptive sunglass brand called Gooder. Um, they are such a cute marketing. They're, they're cheap. They're fun. They're everyone in our area. Like, it's like, oh, you all wear the Gooder stuff. And I couldn't replace the lens, but I can't figure out what they're at. And I'm like, you still got to still tweak it. But, you know, everyone's, I think they're all just trying to break in their own voice which is interesting. So can you think of a brand that demonstrates that power of and seeing opportunities where others force compromise? The first thought I had on this was, was actually, again, it's a bit of a dated example. Maybe, maybe this is telling that all my examples from the nineties now, <laughs> but the first one that came to mind was Virgin. And I think just because of what Branson did in terms of intentionally going into categories to look, he went into categories that had compromises in them and had problems in them and frustrations in them. I, but I was thinking actually about Uber when you said that as well um, before. But, and 
what I love about Virgin is just that mentality of almost on the hunt for where consumers were dissatisfied, right? Whether it was in transportation in particular, but then going into other other verticals as well and seeing like where there were problems and how you could how you could re-engineer it. I'm not sure if in reality the I mean the experiences were often great. I'm not sure if in reality how pioneering, that's why I didn't put it as a pioneering, because I'm not sure how really truly pioneering it was, but I think in a way of like trying to understand the human experience and where the frustrations and tensions were in the human experience. I think um, they had a I think Branson and the Virgin team had a real eye for that at, um, at the beginning. Great one. At Build, I would say Patagonia. Mm -hmm. um, I think what they've done with their planetary and environmental pursuits and even you know, the ability to send stuff back to get it fixed versus rebuying, it's, it's in contrast to a consumerism that you want to grow. So I think they've done a nice job balancing that. And I love that you each could pull upon things that you're either a consumer of or observer of, because that's that's the flip side of what you do every day. So um, thank you for those answers. So let's do our last lightning round, which is spill your guts. So first question, what's the first brand you remember as a child? Bridget. Score. So I have to say, what is, it's like a toffee, it was a bar, but it's a memory of when we would go skiing. It was like, my dad was a dentist. I got to have like a toffee candy bar and they're delicious. Oh, and so it was really special and a unique experience. Okay, I like that. Nick, how about you? It's embarrassing to say this when I worked for Mondelez, but actually it was Cadbury. That's the brand I remember. I mean, I remember it for like holidays and Easter and just, you know, just, it was that kind of, glue of the family over the holidays was was getting Cadbury whatever form it was um out or you know coming home from school and it would be what my grandma would give me um when I came home from school so just it I guess maybe it was maybe it was fated for me to end up um at Mondelez eventually but uh, yeah it's the just the first brand that comes to mind yeah well I love that nostalgia what book or movie best represents your career journey Bridget so thank you for giving me some time to think on that one. But I think what I ended up with was The Tao of Pooh, which is one of my favorite books in general that changed my life. And for those who don't know, it's Taoism means the way, and it's the way told through the Winnie the Pooh characters. And there's a lot of vignettes in there, I think, that speak. But ultimately, you know, whatever I wanted may not have happened, but it's all happened. And it's just kind of been that way. So mine's not anywhere near as intellectual as that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we can scrap the next conversation. No. So, um, but it's funny because my choice was a similar one, maybe. Was I immediately went to Forrest Gump. Bear with me, bear with me. Just for that, the line about life is like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. Because actually, I sort of, you know, some people have a real plan in their life about what they're going to do when they're going to go from A to B to C to D. I can tell my story in retrospect and make it all fit together, but it didn't happen like that. It was, it felt somewhat, you know, meandering to a certain extent in terms of my journey and actually been a lot of fun as a result of that. But I think, you know, I always, I use that line sometimes when people are talking about career progression and, you know, their career journey and just say, don't stress about what does the final box look like? Just enjoy each of the chocolates on the way because it's the valuable experience. You might discover you want to do something completely different. So, so just enjoying the moment and the and not worrying too much about what comes next. 
I'm also really picking up on a strong confection theme, Nick. Yeah, I, I promise you, I'm not trying <laughs> to sell one. How would you describe your job to a child, Bridget? Get to create and make snacks. And then I help others who do too. Easy enough. I could get that as a kid. How about you, Nick? I tell people I help sell snacks by understanding what people want. What's one piece of advice you would give a business leader looking to help their brand be gutsy? Bridget. Just be true to yourself, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that will allow you to be gutsy. Yeah, I'd say be true to yourself. And back to something we said before, like have conviction in what it is that you're doing because uh, you're going to need it. Good advice. All right. What's the most used emoji on your phone, Bridget? Oh, you guys can't see this on there, yeah. but it's the wink with the tongue out of the crazy person. <laughs> you really acted it out really well, so we'll probably have to. I know you, it you know, very we well. now know what the image is going to be on this whole podcast is just that image of Bridget. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mine's the wink emoji because that's basically because I don't take anything seriously. So I mean, Bridget probably knows this. But almost all of my IMs and messages have a wink or a smiley face in them somewhere. Okay, final question and probably the most important. We have compiled a gutsy brand playlist. So you have to check it out. What song would you add, Bridget? Carrie Underwood Champion. Solid, solid choice. I would have Meat Life. I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't do that. Because I think, you know, ultimately gutsy brands have to have love and conviction, but you also have to be choiceful. You have to know what you believe in and what you don't. That is a wonderful conclusion to what was truly, genuinely such an enjoyable conversation. I learned so much from both of you and, and not just from each of your responses, but how you've collaborated in real time to elevate the conversation and the insights. So I really appreciate it and so appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Jess. Thanks. Well, Jess, you recorded your very first multiple guest episode, and I feel like you could have gone on for another hour. What do you think? Uh, yes, absolutely. And first, I have to say, I feel like we were graced with the Hall of Fame of innovators. Um, what experiences they both bring and how willing they were to share everything they've learned. I just was so humbled that we were able to, to have that conversation with Nick and Bridget. And I feel like I could have let them banter back and forth and just sort of listened and soaked in all the wisdom. The professional chemistry that they have is palpable. And, you know, Bridget called it out in the beginning. I immediately knew that we shared a common sensibility. It just was refreshing to see, you know, how great things can be accomplished with colleagues, if they're collaborative, if they're open. And I think first and foremost, that they're genuine. Yeah, and I completely agree. And one of the things that spoke to me about them was their authenticity. You could just feel it. And they're both so funny, but they take leadership so seriously. And you could see that or hear that rather by the way they talked about how they work on themselves. Bridget was mentioning how she likes to leave space for other people to answer questions, even though she can answer the question. And in the same vein, Nick mentioned how he likes, it's comfortable for him to talk through silences. So he's, he works on that by not doing it. So I just found that really refreshing, especially with two such powerhouse people. Yep. They are people after all. That's true. 
So there was a lot of great information, lots of nuggets of wisdom. What do you think the key takeaways were? Yes. Well, I think my most prominent takeaway ended up being the title of this episode, Story Behind Every Number. And at the end of the day, we are all human. And if you just focus on the data points that you have in front of you, and these days you can argue, maybe there are too many data points in front of us, but <laughs> if you just focus on that, that data and the numbers, you miss the underlying story. You'll fall into what Nick called empathy illusion. You can't look at the average. You have to look at the extreme experiences to really understand what's going on. So to me, that was the most memorable takeaway and not just from how to look at humans as consumers, but also how that translates internally to your organization and how you interact with your colleagues. Um, you know, a superficial, how was your weekend? It just doesn't cut it anymore. People are complex, deeply feeling, and you have to invest in understanding that context if you're going to connect. And I just found that to be so relevant and so true. And it's something that we spend a lot of time on here at Gut Check. It's one of the reasons we really like to pair quantitative research with qualitative research, because yes, you want to be scientific and statistical, but you really want to get to those stories because you can make breakthroughs when you know those stories. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that their conversation really illustrated that. And, you know, I think another part that frankly is my most memorable part of the discussion, I think about it often is this intersection between empathy and standing behind bold ideas. And so the way that that came to fruition is Nick was talking about Oreo's commitment to the LGBTQ plus community and their work with PFLAG and the Proud Parents campaign, which have you seen that, M? I looked it up right after. It yeah, is I Googled. So, oh my gosh. It was just so inspiring. So genuine. I, I feel like I'm overusing that word, but um you know, and, and he talked about how important it is to really commit to a, a community. And in this case, that community is what he was talking about. And you have to embed yourself in the conversation, embed yourself in that community so that you can show up over and over again. You're forming a relationship. It's not just transactional. You're not just saying hi in Pride Month, which we're recording this right now in Pride Month. There's a lot of brands kind of, you know, raising their hand at this moment in time. Well, where's that dedication and commitment day after day? I just thought that it was, it was such a great illustration of, uh, of demonstrating empathy and then that it has to be a commitment that, that when you do mm -hmm. so. And then Bridget talked about the, the Kapow brand, which is upcycled cacao fruit, which genius, it's using the waste from the cocoa bean during chocolate production. So genius idea, but it takes a lot of explaining, right? There's a lot of complexity to how to describe how that works and the benefits and et cetera, et cetera. So she talked about how you have to be really brave to go all in on this new idea that no one understands yet and is really tough to get across. And what was interesting is those two stories really intersected in that to make connection, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes resources to convince folks internally. That was the case of Oreo and their Proud Parents campaign. That was not an easy sell in. They had to really, really have conviction to say this is the right thing. Um, and then with Kapow, it was more externally, right? How do we communicate and really commit to explaining this product line and this brand? You make the case by explaining that these are real people out there. They're thinking and feeling. And if your brand is willing to make the commitment to show up, 
if there's something solid at the heart of it, it's going to push it forward. I mean, it was just amazing that that whole conversation still yeah. stuck with me. All of those were amazing examples. And I was Googling everything like as we had the conversation, because it was just so inspiring and interesting to us because this is what we live and breathe. Yep, absolutely. And in terms of pioneering new paths, I was so glad to learn about the work the Cadbury India team had done last year. It's an example that frankly makes me proud to be part of and involved with the marketing industry. And it started with this, what if, right? So situation pandemic hits, local stores are incredibly set back. It's sort of extreme survival mode. And the team said, well, what if we could advertise all the local stores, but at scale? Well, the answer at the time is like, well, that can't be done, but by expanding their thinking, they found a solution, right? They used artificial intelligence, adapting this famous Bollywood star's voice to say this range of hundreds of thousands of different local stores based on GPS location. So they created this hyper-local ad with this huge celebrity. I mean, it's that kind of thinking. You just turn the whole problem upside down. It's spectacular, right? Yeah. And Bollywood's huge, right? That's a lot of people that you can reach uh, by connecting to something that they love. Yep. So it's so great. And the use of technology, it was just such a great story. Absolutely. And, and finally, I just want to say, I always love hearing about and learning more about Mondelez's collab. They're doing incredible things and it's embodying the power of and through and through it's bringing startup thinking to big companies and big company thinking to startups. I feel like that in itself should be an MBA course that Bridget should probably just go ahead and spearhead. Don't, don't you think? Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah, exactly. So overall, I truly did. I learned so much that really has stuck with me from these two individuals. They're just genuine, collaborative, innovative leaders. They really invest in understanding people, whether it's their consumers, their teammates, their colleagues, and they figured it out that if you invest in a deep understanding, you're going to be doing the right things and you're going to have an impact. I thought it was such an incredible demonstration of gutsiness. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Gutsiest Brands podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider sharing our episode with a friend and leaving us a five-star review. See you next time.